Well, opening our Bibles, please, at Luke's Gospel, <clears throat> chapter 9. Luke's Gospel and chapter 9. We'll read the passage first and then <clears throat> we'll speak. And it's verse 18 in particular. <clears throat> We've come to a particular point. We've actually come to a turning point now in the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18. It came to pass as he was alone praying. His disciples were with him. You say, well, he's not alone. Well, he was certainly praying alone and they've come to him. And he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? You know, who do they really think I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. <clears throat> Some say, Elias. Others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. Now it says elsewhere in Matthew the exact wording was thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And he charged them and commanded them to tell no man that saying. You might ask why did he do that? We'll see that as we go through. Then he says to them, and he teaches them this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be slain, and be raised again the third day. Let me read the, that to you another way. The Son of Man must suffer many things, and must be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and must be slain, and must be raised again the third day. <clears throat> He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged or what does he benefit? If he gains the whole world, and he lose himself or be cast away. Or as another Matthew puts it, and lose his own soul. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And God bless the word to us. And give us a little understanding of the tremendous truths that the Lord Jesus is now trying to teach his followers. Because we've come to a point now in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus where we are facing the last six months of his life. Right? We're right at the last six months. The rest of Luke deals basically with all the events that happened in the last six months of the Lord Jesus. We're just six months away from that actual event 
when the good shepherd would um, give his life for the sheep. And at this point in the mission and work of the Lord Jesus, there is a distinct change in direction. And there's a distinct change in emphasis as to what he teaches. For 33 years now, more or less, he has lived a life which has been truly perfect and God-glorifying. He has brought glory to God in his life in a way that no other man ever has or ever could. He's now looking forward six months ahead and turning towards that time in his de- of his death. And when he dies, he will bring glory to God in death. No other man has ever done that. For when someone dies, it's the wages of their sin. But when the Christ came to give his life, he was giving it not for his own sin, because there was none. He was giving his life for the sheep. And he was bringing in that death glory to God. You see, the Lord Jesus in this life that we've been just pondering in a a very sort of broad sense, he is the one who has demonstrated for 33 years what God really really meant when he said, let us make man in our image and after our own likeness. It was seen there in its beauty and its perfection. It was seen from the moment he was born, that very birth, glory to God in the highest was what was said. It was seen in his boyhood as he was growing up and he says, I must be about my father's business. It was seen as the years of his manhood that were so beautiful that by the time he reached the age of 30, God the Father himself could say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I found no fault, no defect, nothing but pleasure for 30 solid years. And now as we've traced him coming forth on the banks of Jordan at the age of 30, in order to undertake the great program of God in the dealing with sin, in the breaking of Satan's power, of the undoing of the works of the devil, we've seen him moving in that sense of glory and of wonder. And by the time he gets to the end of his life and is facing the actual point of laying down his life in death, He can turn and say to God, his Father in heaven, I have glorified you on the earth and I've finished the work that you gave me to do. It is as though at that point, before his death, he completed phase one of his great mission to live a perfect life, a sinless life, a righteous life, for the glory of God. And he says, I have finished that portion of my work and of my service. And as we consider just those three years of his ministry, and we've, we've seen that perfect life, and in that life, he was what was he doing? He was constantly confronting sin and Satan. He was undoing the works of the devil. He was delivering the captives. He was setting them free. He's confronting the demons, and he's terrifying them and overthrowing them. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's delivering the oppressed. And he's declaring the acceptable year of the Lord. It's been wonderful to follow those three years. There seems to be joy and victory and a sense of hope and anticipation in the hearts of all as he moves from, as it were, triumph to triumph. The demons fall. The death is dispelled. The diseased are made well. The children are blessed. And people are following in the multitudes. It's a wonderful, wonderful period of time. 
Their hopes of the people are high. After all, their life is going to change. The Messiah has come in all his greatness. And at last, there's deliverance for his people. Rome is going to be overthrown. Yes, Caesar's going to topple down. And what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to reign, deliver Israel, establish a kingdom. Now that's as far as their understanding went. The truth is at this point now, he must, as it were, give them to understand where his mission now goes. It's going to go to the heart of the problem, whereby in his death he can deal with him who has the power of death. He can destroy him. He can break his power. He can indeed set the captive truly free. He can deal with sin and bring in the real meaning of the acceptable, the rejoicing year of the law, the year of jubilee, the year of liberty. And finally, Satan, we will see, in the program of God is being taken. And steadily, Satan is being gradually bound. And he won't be able to work as he once did and deceive the nations anymore finally to be taken and to be absolutely destroyed in Revelation in chapter 20. But meanwhile, it says in verse 23, this is what he wants them to understand. It's simply this, that he must suffer many things, that's verse 23. He must be rejected. He must be slain. He must rise again. And if that does not happen, then none of their hopes will ever be fulfilled. Now, in order to now take that direction, which is a distinct change in direction here in the last six months of his life, he must firstly prepare his disciples for what actually lies ahead. And then he must turn in that direction himself. There becomes a definite purpose now in his every move and footstep. He must prepare his disciples, and that's verses 18 to 26 that we have read. And he must turn in that direction. And that's really verse 51 in the same chapter. Came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly, there's no shifting him, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. One of the translations says, he set his face as a flint or as a stone. You know, there was no moving him in his purpose. He's heading now to the greatest work of all, and that's the work of his death, climaxing in the resurrection. Now, this morning we want to look at how he prepared the disciples in verses 18 to 26, how he prepared them for this which lay ahead. And there are two things that he wants them to understand. Firstly, they must understand who he really is. If you and I are going to be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must understand who Jesus is. Don't have any misunderstandings or misconceptions or partial conception. You must have a thorough understanding of who he is, number one. Number two, you must understand what it means to be a disciple. Now that's what he's teaching them here, particularly in verse 23 to 26. If any man will come after me. So number one, understand who Jesus is. Number two, understand what it means to be a true follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only if you grip those two things, only if you do, will you, if you truly know who he is, 
then you will be prepared to pay the price of being a disciple. Do you understand that? And I want to bring that home as we open it up. There's a price to pay for following the Lord. It was a lesson for them. It would have been so good so far. It has all looked so absolutely wonderful. Things are going so well and it's all so successful. But wait a minute. There is suffering. There is rejection. There is shame. There is death that lies ahead. And to follow him on this final journey, this last six months, to finally stand by the cross of Jesus, that requires a price which must be paid. That's why he teaches them what it means to be a true disciple. It was a lesson for them then. Look, it's a lesson for us now. Because what we love to say is salvation costs us nothing. And that's true. It's beautiful. Nothing to pay. No, nothing to pay. Not at all. It's all being paid on our behalf. Salvation costs us nothing. But I want to say this. Discipleship will cost you everything. Now, that's the bit we've sort of missed, all right? To follow the Lord will cost us everything. And they had to face this. So he commences this teaching by saying, I want you to understand who I am. And this is how he begins, verse 18. Whom do the people say that I am? Or whom do the people say that I, the Son of Man, am? I'm just mixing Matthew, Mark and Luke together in the question, all right? Now look at the answer. Some say, well, John the Baptist. Then some say, Elias, well, he was some prophet. Others say just one of the old prophets who's risen again. Matthew says some of them said he might be Jeremiah. Now, that's quite nice, isn't it, to say those lovely things about the Lord, because obviously they had some respect for him, all right? And after all, they had a favourable opinion of him. And they, he was a good man. He's a great man. They like his words. They like his works and so on. And it's, But, you know... It's a very inadequate assessment of who Jesus really is. That's the point. They clearly liked him. They clearly admired him. But I tell you, if it's only a liking of his person, of his nature, of his ethics, or admiring his character and his works, that will never produce a true follower of Jesus Christ. Never. It'll produce a temporary follower, as we'll see, but it will never produce a true one. And we need to understand there's a price to pay to be a true disciple. So the Lord turns and says, look, you've got to have a better understanding than that. And he says to them, in view of what lies ahead, he's going to tell them he must suffer, remember, he must die, he must rise again. There's a path ahead that's difficult, a road that's hard. Fellow Christians, I firmly believe that for all of us now, in the day in which we're living, there's a harder road ahead of us than we've had. We've had it fine. We've had lots of singing. We've had lots of blessing. And we've had lots of ease, really. But there's something coming ahead of us. And it's the normality of the Christian pathway, which we've for probably forgotten about. So let us prepare our hearts. And let us be sure we really know who Jesus is. Number one. Number two, then sit down and be prepared to understand what it means to really be a follower of Jesus Christ. The bottom line is, you have to forsake all to follow me. That's the truth of it, is we'll build it up. Right. So he says to them, look, what about you? Where is it? Verse 20. Who do you say that I am? 
Peter answering said, and I'll use Matthew's words, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is a tremendous summary of who the Lord Jesus really is. It really is a beautiful thing. You see, this is not just a conclusion that he's come to. This is a confession that he makes. See, there's a difference here. There's a distinct difference. You see, the crowd had looked and just seen their superficial observations and they'd come to a, you know, a conclusion based on their observation. But you see, Peter, he makes a confession based on an inward realisation. The crowd are looking external, but Peter, internal, has a realisation of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. And what he's doing here, he's confessing with his mouth the Lord Jesus because he believes in his heart, you see. There's something come from outside of that man, right to the inside of that man, to give him a realisation within, which is more than the casual observations from without. And the true Christian knows within himself who Jesus is really is we'll say more about that is in a little more it's a tremendous statement that he makes because he says you are the Christ the son of the living God in other words he's saying you are the Messiah that means you are the anointed one and we all know from the scriptures who was anointed in the Old Testament the prophet was anointed the priest was anointed and the king was anointed and he's saying look In a way, he's almost anticipating it later on. I believe that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, the ultimate word of God, the ultimate communication of God. He spoke the word of God. He spoke the truth of God. He lived the word of God. He lived the truth of God. He was the message as well as the messenger from God. And he says, ah, this is what I can see. You are the Christ Indeed, he's almost saying more than he fully understands at that particular point. And it's also the priest, for this is the one who's going to have a sacrifice for sin. This is the one, you are the one who's going to be the only one that can bring a sinner to God based on the sacrifice which you will make for that sin. You are the good shepherd, he's saying, that's going to lay down your life for the sheep. He says, I understand that. That's in this confession. That's what every Christian knows. He is the word of God. He's the message of God. He's the revelation of God. He's the word of God. He's the prophet. He knows, we all know, that we rely on him and his sacrifice. And he's the only way to God. He's the only one that can deal with your sin that keeps you away from God. He is the true priest. And he is the true king. For everyone who's found the truth about him has gladly bowed our knees and crowned him Lord of all. And he's worthy to reign, you know, because he's conquered every foe. And the person who knows who Jesus is knows that he is the Christ. And it's almost as though Peter's confessing it almost beyond his present understanding, but embracing the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, number one, thou art the Christ. Number two, he's the son of the living God. I mean, this, this man really knows who Jesus is. He's not looking and saying, oh, he's a good man like a prophet. He's saying far more. He said, 
This man is actually God, the son of the living God. He is of the same kind, of the same essence. He is fully man, yes, as anointed of God, as the, as the Christ and as the Messiah, but he's fully God, not just fully man. And he's not just another God like all the gods that the Romans have, you know, just another one amongst us. He is the living, that's it, he's right in front of him, he's alive. The other idols are dead. Others are in history. But he's the true and he's the living God. He, see, what's happened to this man is this. And what happens to the believer when they come to this understanding and really set out on the true path of discipleship? The essential thing has come within the understanding. It's come to them as a revelation. And when you're saved, it's like a power outside of you, and that power is God. He shines into you the light of that knowledge of the gospel, and that light goes right into your heart and stays there and glows and shines back out again. doesn't leave you. Not that no full knowledge of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when it says, The light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, has shone into our hearts. It shone into this man to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's his own, and I'm taking it almost too far, Peter looked at him in the face of Jesus Christ and said, you are the son of the living God. I can see the glory of God shining in your very face. Now that is a true Christian, you see. That is what every believer knows and has within here. It's put within here by a power that's outside of you, the power that's greater than you. And that knowledge within you, born from above, that new life and new light and new understanding, given to you by the Holy Spirit of God himself, Never leaves you. Never. And the truth is, if you're truly saved, you can never deny who Jesus is. Never. But if you never understood it in the first place, yes, you'll be a temporary Christian. And what will happen is, come pressure and circumstance, come the story of suffering, rejection and shame, and discovering that you have to follow this master, this Jesus, this miracle-working wonder man, but you must follow him in his shame and you must be part in his death and you must realise that he's been rejected before he's crowned a king. Oh, no, you say, I don't want to go down that road. Now, this is what's happening here. He's preparing them to go down that road and those who are prepared have that sense and understanding and knowledge within the heart put there by the very hand of God. Now, when Matthew tells this story, he adds a little bit that Luke doesn't. And he backs up exactly what I've been trying to say to you, that that light comes from outside, inside. That knowledge comes from outside, within you. And you are made new with a new understanding and a new heart. Actually, it's like being blind, and now you've been made see. He's giving sight to the blind. And once you struggle to know who Jesus was, and he was always such a good man with a good ethic, but just another one of the prophets. But no, you've, that oppression, you know, that captivity of blindness of mind, it's been broken for you. And in Matthew, the Lord Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you get that? 
You know who Jesus is. Do you know why you do? Because you're cleverer than the crowd and you analysed it a little bit better and you did all your apologetics, didn't you? And you read all the books on it and you said, oh, well, this is who he is. No, no, no. The light of the glorious gospel shone in and God himself did a work in your heart whereby there was new light within and a new life to receive it and an ability to grasp it and to embrace it. And that's how you got saved. And that's why you can never, one of the reasons why you can never be lost, because God did it. Now, until you get the hang of that, I'm telling you now, you will have no assurance of salvation. I'll say more about that, maybe some later day. That's the key of what God has done. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a tremendous confession. (laughs) And then in verse 21, what happens? He says to them, he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man the thing. You think, well, you know, why would that be? I'd have thought they should have raced out there and... (coughs) you know, blasted it left, right and centre from one end of Jerusalem to the other. He says, no. Now, we'll stay in the context. I don't profess to have a, a clear answer to that, but I do think it's right to say they actually did not fully understand the complete, the full implications of what they just said. Now, that's proven by the very next verse because he has to teach them that he's going to die. All right? And not only does he have to teach them that he's going to die, but later on he has to reinforce it by saying, look, in verse 44, would you please let this saying sink down in your ears that the Son of Man shall be suffered, shall be delivered into the hands of men. You know, that bit they struggled, struggled, struggled with. It's the key to why the transfiguration, one of the keys to why the the transfiguration follows. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what were they listening to? A conversation between Moses and Elias and the Lord Jesus, and they were talking about his exodus, his decease, his death, right? And what did they do? They fell asleep. They saw his glory. I don't know how much of the conversation they actually heard, right? So what happens? A voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Yes, that's his glory. But listen to him, will you? Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Get a grip of the fact he must suffer. He must be shamed. He must be rejected and he must die. These are the musts of this section of his mission and this timing in the program of God. And that absolute must, they're essential. Otherwise, there'll be no sacrifice for sin. Otherwise, the power of sin will never be broken. Otherwise, the power of Satan will never be broken. Otherwise, his works will never be finally and eternally undone. Satan's captains will never be set free. And we'll never stand and look in the glory of Mount Zion and see the Lamb who is reigning and see those that are with him and be told that these are they that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He must die. We must understand it. A reigning Messiah, yes, they got the hang of that. But a suffering Messiah, they still had much to learn. And it's as though the Lord says, look, don't declare it. You're not ready to, as it were, defend your faith yet. You have more to see and more to go. He says, you understand Isaiah's prophecy about a reigning Messiah But you've forgotten chapter 53 about a suffering saviour. 
And you know, to this very day, that's the one thing that the Israel, the nation and the Jews cannot understand is Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. He would never divide the spoil with the strong. He will never see the travail of his soul and God the Father be satisfied, except he dies. Now can you see what it's all about and why I'm so strenuously trying to lay before you they had to understand who the Lord Jesus is. It's essential they understand the musts, right, that we've read about in that verse 22. It's essential they learn, as it were, the, the lesson of the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. See who he really is. He's not just a carpenter's son. Let his garments glisten white. Let his glory burst so bright. But listen to him. Don't fall asleep. He's talking about his decease, which he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And two men are there talking about it. One is the prophets. They knew it well, for they predicted it. The other is Moses. He understood it well, as every sacrifice of blood that he gave the direction for represented the coming one who would die. Very important. Because you can't be a disciple if you don't understand this. In John... John records the confession of Peter. Actually, it's probably at a different time in John chapter 6, but it's a very similar record. It would seem to be some six or nine months before this. In John chapter 6, there's, it's an incredible picture. Let me, let me just give it to you because it'll back up everything I've said. And I don't want to ever be saying anything off this platform that's not out of the Bible. I don't want any sanctified imagination or whatever it is because you can go off on tangents. In John chapter 6, you, what you're going to find there is that the crowds were following him, just like we've seen in the earlier part of Luke. They were, they were so eager to hear him that when he went over the, over the lake, the next thing is they came looking for him and they, they got into boats and they, they rode off and they said, we've got to, got to, got to come and see you. Why, why did you run away on us? They want to hear more. Now he says to them, look, you're seeking me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you... Actually, you ate the loaves and you were filled. He said, what you're looking for is the good times and the blessings and the benefits. But you can't be a disciple because of the benefits you get, merely that are physical or that are temporal. Because there are going to be times ahead when the, you know, the free food's going to run out and the miracles, they won't be so the same. And he's actually telling them in this chapter and pointing out there's going to come a day when they will cease to follow. Now that's exactly what happens in that section. Exactly what happens. It's exactly what's been happening ever since. And it's exactly what will always happen. It is only those who really know who Jesus is who will actually follow. He says to them, look, it's not bread you're after. You need to understand I am the bread of life. You need to understand that you must be totally and absolutely dependent on me. You need to understand that you need to eat of me so that the life which is in me may yet become into you. 
so that there might be a new birth, there might be the Holy Spirit's quickening power, there might become regeneration and a new life, and the life I have will be the life that you have, an eternal life that you may have, which is to be found in me. And as you identify yourself completely with me, so that life comes to you, but you won't be able to do it unless you eat my flesh, that's the figure, and you drink my blood. That is, you understand my death. And you make it yours. And you understand it was for you. And you embrace the truth of me, the dying sacrifice. The priest who is getting that sacrifice which he will offer. You understand that death was for you. And you must follow me in that meaning and that understanding. Now he teaches them all that. And it says many were offended. Many. There was crowds there. This is in John 6. Many were offended. And the Lord says, but uh, he knew that there were many who did not believe. And he says, are you offended? He says, what are you doing being offended? The spirit quickens, the flesh profits nothing. In other words, you know, you can follow me and you can assess me and you can be like the... Those people that made a good assessment of me, that's the flesh, that's the natural thinking man. But it won't get you there, you see. You need the life from God put within you. Because I tell you, he says, you can't come to me except it's given to you of my Father. Blessed art thou, Simon, my Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed that unto you. But my Father, the outside work of God into the inside turmoil and unbelief and hardness of a human heart that puts new life and opens blind eyes and embraces the Saviour because you know who he is. And if you don't know him this morning, who he really is, you better go to the God who will work a great work of salvation and revelation and you'll have your eyes opened and you will see who Jesus really is and you'll never stop following after that. Never. What happens? Many went away in John 6 when they really woke up to the message that he must suffer, he must bleed, he must die, there must be shame, there must be rejection. Many went away. And then he turns to his disciples and said, would you also go away? You going to? You going to? What does it say, Lord? To whom shall we go? You've got the words of eternal life. And we have believed and are sure. That's it. And are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah later on. Flesh and blood never showed it to you. But my Father who is in heaven... I mean, it's a wonderful thing, fellow Christian, to be truly, truly the Lord and truly, truly saved. And because of his work in you, which you realise you are relying on, you believe, yes, but you are absolutely sure. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'd like to go back to Luke. I'd like to go straight on now, but I'm not going to because there's a reason here. He says to them in verse 23, after he's established those musts, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, and so on. And he points out now, you understand where I'm going. You understand what this mission is really all about. You understand what to be a follower of me is all about. Now I want to show you very clearly what it will cost and what you must understand 
before you commit to following after me. But something rather dreadful happens between verses 22 and 23. Let's go to Matthew 16. Because that is exactly where it happens. In Matthew 16, you've got exactly the same thing recorded. Verse 21, from that time forth, Jesus began to show to his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now look at this. I mean, this is incredible. What happens? Satan attacks at this very point. Because he, if Christ goes to the cross and gains that kingdom, it means he will be dethroned and his power will be totally broken over every captive that he's held in his kingdom. And Satan, what happens here? It says, Peter took him aside. He began to rebuke him. And this is Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall never be, not be unto thee. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence, a stumbling stone. That's what that is. Peter, I told you you were a little stone, and I told you your confession was the great rock on which I'm going to build my church. But now you're a stumbling stone, Peter. For you are not mindful of the things of God. You're not thinking along the lines of God's thoughts. But you are thinking along the thoughts of men. This is, I I just find that a most fearful thing to read. And something you hesitate to touch. And you fear in your own shoes, lest as a believer who really does know who Jesus is, you might even become an instrument for Satan to use in order to deter the program of God. Because that's what we're really looking at. It's a huge lesson. We need to be careful, fellow Christian. Don't get so enthusiastic and sometimes and so caught up and taken up with your notions that sometimes you find yourself in working in opposition with the program of God. You say, well, that'll never happen. Well, excuse me, it just happened here to Peter. It just happened here to Peter. You see, you need to understand that this wasn't the first time that this very thing had happened to the Lord Jesus. Do you remember in the temptations in the wilderness? He was taken to that mountain, was it? And he was shown the kingdoms of the earth, wasn't he? And Satan says, now look, all these kingdoms, they're mine, all right? The truth is, I will give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. In other words, he says, take the kingdom by all means, but not by way of death. He knew that if Christ claimed the kingdom by way of death and resurrection, his power would once and for all be broken and he would be totally dethroned and no longer able to reign and to rule. So he says, avoid the cross, whatever you do, and I'll just give it to you the easy way. And he turns and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's the temptation. 
Now Satan and his craft, because deceit and craft are the, were his weapons, his, his wiles, his methods. He says, I'll use this disciple who knows, you know, he's prominent, he's, he's somebody, he's near the Lord. And he gets in through that man's mind who thinks, well, it's terrible, kingdom, power, glory, suffering, shame, death. I know who he is, he can't possibly have to go through that. And he uses that man to say exactly the same thing. Don't let this happen to you above all people, Lord. And the Lord turns and he says, I'm telling you, Peter, you are not thinking along the lines of God. You are not in tune with the purposes of God. Fellow Christian, we must understand the cross and its necessity. We must preach the cross and its message. There is no other way to become a follower of Jesus Christ except by way of the cross. For the way of the cross leads home, we love to sing, don't we? The way of the cross leads home. And I bid farewell to the ways of this world. Why? The way of the cross leads home. That's the lesson here. Because, you see, through history, right through history, what we see over and over is that great structures set up with good intention, organisations, Excellent intentions. Even great churches or church movements, right? Eager to bring in the kingdom of God. And they've grown in their influence. And very often their social work is so good. Their charities are so great. They manage to come, how or other, to get sometimes some influence in a political sphere. And they're so thrilled and taken up with what they're trying to do to bring in the kingdom of God. There's many people who actually think that if we can get the world right first, then Jesus will come and establish his kingdom. He'll be able to do it. I mean, it's all back to front. He'll come and he will do it. But you see, what happens as time goes by so often with all the social work and all the power or all the finance or all the charity... Charity, the message of the cross is either left out or slowly slips into the background. And the good works and the good influence and the apologetics and the arguments and the building of bridges is all so important. But we forget the way of the cross is the only road that leads you home. The only message for a sinful world and the furtherance of the kingdom of God is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. Satan says, I don't want that message to get out to the world. Take the kingdom, I'll give it to you. I don't want churches preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh no, because I know that that evangel, that message is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who will believe. And fellow Christian, aren't you thrilled? There came a day when you heard the gospel, the message of the cross, of a shepherd that gave his life for the sheep, and you were one of them, of a priest that had a sacrifice for your sin, and you needed that sacrifice because that sin was yours, of a saviour who died for sinners, and you were one of them. And you heard the blessed message of his mission. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you turned and trusted. 
and the light was on and the heart was opened and the ability within to receive and to fully believe with saving faith came to you and our Father which is in heaven made it known to us and we never thought like the things of men anymore. We thought with the mind of God. May God encourage us this morning and bless us in his word. Amen. Father, we just give thanks for these blessed moments when we read the scriptures and see what the Lord Jesus did and when we really ponder them and listen closely and gain a deeper understanding, our hearts are moved to worship and we do bow our knees for he is and he was no ordinary man. He was truly the Christ the Son of the living God. May that grip our hearts as we leave this morning. May we glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. And in that glorious resurrection, in that triumphant ascension, in the wonder of his enthronement at the right hand of the majesty on high, we live our present life in a sinful world amidst its disgrace, suffering shame for his namesake, but all the while looking forward to that blessed day when our Lord shall come in power and splendour from on high. And he will come quickly, his reward will be with him, and we'll all say, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, and may the grace of that one, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessing again this coming week or until our Lord shall come. Amen.